We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have like a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, Pacer Nation? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace on PacersTalk.net. And joining me on a Thursday night, which is very out of the norm for us, is the one and only Kent Sterling. Kent, thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Alex. Feeling excited. We're going to get basketball maybe six or eight weeks from now. I dig it. Yeah, July 15th is what I've been seeing floating around on Twitter as the first day of, of games could be played on July 15th. So, hey, you know... While we're in this pandemic, everything's just totally off. Why not just play basketball? Start it up, finish the season in July. That just sounds like fun to me. Well, and it, I, I think it really speaks to the the smarts of Adam Silver as the commissioner, where he's not going to be the first in the water. He's going to let baseball relaunch. He's going to let some other sports kind of get their feet wet, whether it's a Premier League or Bundesliga. And they're going to learn from those guys, so they're not the first ones in and that they make the mistakes adam silver's a pretty sharp cat yeah no there's no doubt about it he is and i am you know they are a league that is not going to be the first ones to make the move that is no doubt there's no doubt about that but it is exciting that we can talk about maybe live games again and yeah. while it might be a little bit different the the story is that it's going to be down in walt disney world which we've been hearing rumblings of for quite a bit now so i don't really care how it happens it's going to be weird to me once the season starts again but I'm just excited to see what these Pacers can do. And Kent, you know, today we're going to be talking about our top five favorite moments of the season. But what are some things you're looking forward to seeing how they come back? Well, I want to see Victor Oladipo and how close to 100% he is. I think Mm -hmm. that this works really well for the Pacers. They had some guys who were dinged up, whether it was Oladipo continuing to gather strength or Brogdon who is getting nicked up. They're going to come back 100% healthy probably for the first time this season 100 all across their roster 100 percent. i think that bodes well for the pacers 
Yeah, I'm excited to see how our guys come back that were, you know, dealing with some injuries, like you mentioned. I'm also excited to see how some of the guys that, you know, were playing well, how they come back and play. Just, you know, I'm interested to see if they made any tweaks during this time, what they've been working on. Hopefully nobody regresses. That's your biggest fear. And, you know, the chemistry, hopefully that there's there's still something there. Obviously, it's going to take a little bit of time to get back in the flow of running the offense, that kind of thing. So that's why I would say I'm actually looking forward to maybe a couple weeks of the regular season to, I believe it was, they wanted to get to 70 games total. So I am actually in favor of that. So we don't jump right into the playoffs because I do think if you jumped right into the playoffs, it it could be some bad basketball. So I I think shaking off that rust would be beneficial for a couple weeks. And I want to mention, so people don't think I'm completely out of my mind that uh, Jeremy Lamb, of course, is not going to be 100% healthy. He's gone, and he's going to be gone for quite a while. But other than that, the guys, the starting five, are going to be intact and should be 100% healthy. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So let's get this thing rolling here, Kent. So at number five, what is your top five moment of the season so far? My number five moment is being at practice when Victor Oladipo started moving like Victor Oladipo again and really showed signs that he was going to be able to play at a reasonable level at some point during the regular season. They had kind of earmarked January or February as the time where he was going to be able to play, and I think it was in November where we saw him kind of jogging lightly and then building up and building up, playing a little half-court four-on-four. And in the first time I really saw him go to the rim with some with some pep and and with some dynamism, that was my number five moment. I, because without Victor Oladipo, you're not going to have a very successful team. As willing as these guys are to share the ball and defend as a unit, you need some dynamic playmaking guys on the floor in order to win in the NBA. We saw that in the last dance, I think. You know, for sure, I I think that the Pacers in 98, better team than the Bulls in 98, but the Pacers didn't have Michael and the Pacers didn't have Scotty. If you got the best two players on the floor, you got a hell of a chance of winning games. And the Pacers are not going to have the best two guys on the floor without Victor Oladipo being at 100 percent and seeing him in practice look like Vince or Vic again in that four on four, that kind of shell business. uh, That was just thrilling to me. Well, let me ask you this. How often were you able to see Victor working behind the scenes, or was it just a little bit here and there? No, quite often. Really, any time they opened up practice, they get done what they got to get done. And then after that, you know, the guys kind of break down for shooting, or they work a little bit together on different things. And Victor would come in, and and you knew it was for us. It was for the cameras. Like, uh, Victor is not averse to being uh, videotaped doing things and put on TV doing things. So he would come out, and he's doing kind of shuffles, and he's trotting. And then he'd go on the far court and and do some four-on-four work. But it it was actually quite a bit because Vic knows that's good for business. Right, right. Well, and I think that you brought up a really great point there, and it's something that I've been kind of alluding to a little bit on Twitter that I haven't dove into too much, but I wanted to talk with you about it. It's – you said, you know, Scotty and Michael were the two best players on the court during the Pacers Bulls series in 98. Yeah. And it, it just got me thinking how often have the Pacers had a top 10 player on their roster, you know, or a top 10 player in the NBA on their roster during a playoff series? You know, it's, you know, Reggie was probably borderline top 10 when he was at his peak. 
Uh, Jermaine comes to mind because he was in the MVP voting one year. But it's like the Pacers yeah. haven't had, you know, the LeBrons, the Kobe's, the Jordans, you know, the the game changer, so to say. They've always had really solid teams, but they've never had that that freak guy that's just going to take over a game any moment. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, to have as much success that they've had without having that guy. I mean, I think that speaks volumes to the organization. I do, too. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the last dance that we saw, we saw how Jerry Krause kind of managed his managed or mismanaged his way (laughs) into sort of uh, into his public perception and and how we view him and how we view his teams. And you juxtapose that with a guy like Donnie Walsh. And I, I had a guy in social media claim that Jerry Krause is the best general manager in the history of the NBA. And I said, look, he wasn't the best general manager in the series between the Bulls and the Pacers back in 1998. Donnie Walsh is absolutely as capable an executive as anybody who has ever existed in the National Basketball Mm -hmm. Association. And for him to do what he did, and you could see the results, they went to the Eastern Conference Finals, what, six times? Mm -hmm. Right? They went to the NBA Finals once. Donnie had a hand in building all of those teams to win a championship. You got to have guys, you got to have hall of fame guys. And Donnie had one hall of fame guy in Reggie. And other than that, no hall of fame guys. And that makes it really, really difficult to win a championship. If you do everything right without two or three of those guys, you can go to the conference finals. And I really think that Donnie Walsh and the Pacers did virtually everything right for a really long period of time to the point where, you know what, in, in 98, they were really, they were that jump ball away. Yeah. Maybe from winning that series against the bulls. And then if they win the series against the bulls, I think they win the jet, they beat the jazz. And all of a sudden you're coming back in, in 99 with a team where you've got a, uh, a lockout shortened season, and then in 2000 they're good. They could really have had sort of a Detroit Pistons type of mini era, mm-hmm. like the Pistons had in the uh, in the late 80s and into the early 90s, and and just barely by the slimmest of margins missed out, and did that without the kind of 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 playmaking that you really need to get that done. Yeah, well, no one expected them to, you know, to take down Michael and the Bulls in Game Seven. I mean, that game was there for the grabs, and uh, yep. they could have, they could have won that game. And it, it's funny because I've been listening to some podcasts where they revisited that Game Seven, and I don't know if you got a chance to listen to Zach Lowe's podcast uh, talking with Ryan Russillo about that game, but he did a bunch of interviews and he went through talking about Antonio Davis looking at the bench in complete confusion on where they wanted yeah. to stand. Because he said that Rick Smith's never won jump balls, even though they were going to, even though he was seven four and Michael was six six, he knew that he wasn't gonna, you know, get control of that ball. So he was trying to figure out where exactly the team wanted. And then Travis Best came up and said, "I ran over to Jordan because I saw him open. I left my man Kerr and McKee left to go get Jordan. That's how Kerr got wide open." He said, "I got pulled out immediately after that play." So, you know, those guys talking about it. And then Jalen Rose, too, said he only got 16 minutes in that game. Uh, He was furious (laughs) at Larry for not playing. He said they're all in there hugging and crying. And he said he was just mad beyond belief. He said he wasn't even going to talk to Larry Bird if he tried to talk to him. 
he said he hurries up, gets out of the locker room, and as soon as he gets on the bus, Larry Bird's already sitting in there just mad at himself, apologizes to Jalen for not playing him more than 16 minutes and said, I probably should have put you back in there to close the game. That's my fault. And from then, their relationship became great. But it just, you know, Larry Bird, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, sits there and it takes that loss just as hard as a coach. And it just speaks volumes to me about that team. I know we're getting off topic, but I think it's worth discussing. And a first-time coach. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, it was the first time he was a head coach or an assistant coach in his life. And so you're going to make mistakes like that. And as you get caught up watching stuff, and Larry was really good about maintaining focus. You know, where you saw in the last dance, and I remember at the time back in 98 when Reggie hits a shot in game four, you look at Larry – Larry's not jumping around like everybody else. Larry's completely focused, riveted on the task at hand, knowing that they're going to have to defend Michael on the other end at MSA and and keep him from knocking down the game winner. Larry was really good at that. Larry was really good at staying in the moment. But in that one case, you know what? Jalen Rose is kind of a Swiss Army knife on both ends, a guy you really could have used. Yeah, that, there's no doubt about it. I I do think he probably just relied on Chris Mullen a little bit, knowing that's his veteran put back in the game. But with that being said, let's move on. We've heard a lot of the last dance sure. talk, and I know a lot of people are kind of getting a little overkill with it. So for my number five, Kent, for the top five moments of this season so far, 2019-2020, is the most recent team win they had over the Dallas Mavericks, 112-109. to Domas had 20 points, 17 rebounds, Miles 16 points, 13 rebounds. Victor had a really stellar game with 16 points, 7 rebounds, and 4 assists. And T.J. Warren had 16 points and 8 rebounds. And, you know, there was no Malcolm Brogdon in this moment. You know, we're still talking about Lance at this point coming back to the Pacers. Aaron Holiday gets the start. And, you know, it was just a really great balance team win. And we had seen that throughout the beginning of the season. But once Victor came back, we hadn't seen that balance yet. And this was probably, to me, one of Victor's better games when he came back where he didn't push too much and he allowed Domas and Miles to kind of do their thing against the bigs of Dallas. You know, I've got that game as my number two because okay. I, I think that it, it really is a, a terrific sort of in a it, – it's a real nice uh, game as you look toward what the Pacers can be because mm-hmm. of Miles Turner's performance. And Miles' performance in that game was really indicative of what he had been able to do maybe the previous eight or nine games. And that's put together sort of complete games where, you know, in the beginning of the season, you saw games where he scored or he didn't, or he rebounded or he didn't. And then over about the last nine, ten games of the season before things went on hold, Miles got consistent and really good. And that 16-13 and 13 is is probably that's maybe a skosh more than you would expect him to score and maybe a couple of rebounds more than you expect him to get but he really started to look like a guy you could count on to be about 15 and 10 or 15 and 11 and with him being 15 and 10 and with Sabonis being maybe in 19 and 13 you got a front line that's going to be hell for teams to contend with and so I really like that game sort of as a microcosm of what I'm looking ahead to for this team as Miles sort of uh, moves um, willingly and happily into that role where he's a contributing figure and realizes that he's not the kind of guy who's going to be able to put a team on his shoulders and win meaningful games. He's either going to be like the fourth best starter on a really, really good team 
or he's going to be the best player on a terrible team. Yeah. And I and I think honestly, like the Pacers have seen when Miles does accept that role, and I think we saw it towards the the second half of the season. He really started to embrace that role. Yeah. But he he has vocally came out and said that he was frustrated with what he was trying to trying to do, what they told him to work on in the summer, and then he comes out here and they're like, "Well, you were gonna, we wanted you to work on your post games, but now you're gonna be a stretch four uh, to play on the offensive end." And it kind of threw him for a, a loop. And like any young NBA player, all you want is clarity you want direction and you want understanding and that was something that he felt he wasn't getting but I think seeing Domas play so well being able to play off Domas because Domas is such a willing passer I mean those two guys are such great friends them being able to put 36 points up and 20 rebounds in one game together just shows how dominant the two big man lineup can be now there are going to be times when it's problematic depending on the opponent but I really was just excited to see how well they all play together. And, you know, if you throw Brogdon in there, I mean, if he's only getting 12 points, but he's dishing out seven or eight assists as well, I mean, that's that's a pretty balanced lineup, Ken. And, I, Ken, I think that's going to take a lot for teams to, to de- defeat that in the playoffs. Well, and I think it's one of those teams, right? We, we were talking about the kind of team that can get to the conference finals but is unlikely to win a championship. Mm-hmm. If Victor Oladipo is not great, that's what you've got. You, you've got a bunch of terrific, compatible parts who are going to be able to compete at a high level and beat sort of the lower-tier teams in the NBA and the middle-tier tier, uh, tier teams in the NBA and then put themselves in a position to play well into May and and hope for the best. And, and that's kind of the lot in life for the Pacers over the last 30 years mm-hmm. and or close to 30 years. And it looks like that's kind of what we're moving to unless – we see a guy like Sabonis ascend, maybe a guy like Brogdon get a little bit better, incrementally better enough that the aggregation of those parts really becomes meaningful. That can happen. And, and if, if Oladipo, through the rehab and coming out the other side, can find a way to be you know, an improved version of himself and maintain his, his dynamic presence, I think he got a chance to maybe do something special. I agree, and I'm excited to see what this team can do. And I was excited to see Brogdon say that, you know, it was a lot more difficult for him to get good looks this year trying to score with the ball in his hands. And he uh, he feels like he could benefit from Victor being healthy and getting some yeah. looks without the ball. And I know you're not a big fan of Point Victor, but I do think that it could work in times where you have him and Sabonis running that pick and roll and you have Brogdon just – you know, waiting out there for a catch and shoot, which he did so well last year. I think, you know, really, even if they wanted to go a little bit smaller with Aaron Holiday playing with Victor and Malcolm, they could because Malcolm's so big and in, in, in stature. But anyway, we'll get to that in a little bit as we uh, have plenty of time to still talk about Pacers basketball in the coming weeks. Let's move to your number four for your top five moments, Kent. Speaking of uh, Malcolm Brogdon, it is that night on December 11th where they beat Boston here at Bankers Life Fieldhouse 122-117 he had 29 points and eight assists and really looked to me for the first time like the guy that you think he can be you know he can be a Robin to Oladipo's Batman he can be that kind of guy he's intellectually capable of doing it he's got an incredible basketball IQ and overall IQ he's a terrific competitor he's a great shooter when he's in the right circumstance offensively and, and the defense suits his offense, he can put up points 
And when he's not putting up points, he can hit other guys to, to uh, score. And Malcolm Brogdon's just, I, I think, one of those guys where he could be, uh, this, is, this is overstating it, but I, I think you understand kind of the, the spirit of the comparison, kind of a Scottie Pippen type guy who can defend a lot of different people at a lot of different spots. He can score from a lot of different places, and he's not going to screw stuff up. And and so on that night, I think that we saw for the first time Brogdon in a Pacers uniform really sort of look like that guy that Kevin Pritchard was so excited to uh, to obtain in that deal with the Bucks. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Malcolm Brogdon is probably a top five player in the NBA right now. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that's a great example of of Brogdon's importance to this team. And I remember that game specifically because. Uh, the Holiday Brothers were so clutch down the end, hitting big shots. Yeah. Uh, Sabonis played really well that game. And it was just, you know, the Holiday Brothers, they're just gamers. And I know I'm, I don't really have a lot of talking points about them, but I just want to throw this out there. I felt like in most of the big games this year, those two guys came up big for the Pacers in limited in limited roles. And they, they don't have any fear in them. And I think that they're pretty solid defensively. Now, we know Aaron's a little bit undersized. But, you know, Kemba Walker was going off that game. And I believe he right. had 40-some points that game, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have it off the top of my head. But, you know, Brogdon's matching point for point back. You, you got Justin Holiday knocking down three. Sabonis played really well that game. And, yeah, I mean, I, too, have Brogdon's game-winning layup against the Lakers as my number four, so kind of similar to just what he could be, and he played pretty good defense on LeBron. Of course, LeBron had 20 points, 9 assists, and 9 rebounds because it's LeBron James, right? But Brogdon looked pretty good going up against him and was able to get separation and use the rim as protection to get that reverse layup, and Sabonis had 26-10-4 that game, so Domas with another monster game, and I know they had no Anthony Davis in that game against the Lakers, but it was still great to see because we too are without Victor Oladipo and still trying to figure out what our team was at this point in the season. Yeah, and and speaking of Aaron Holiday, the thing that I really like about Holiday, you look at, look at the kind of the personality of this team, and and Brogdon is a stoic. He's not a guy who's going to throw hands at people. Sabonis can get a little bit irritated. Turner is a bit of a stoic, you know, it, 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 certainly T.J. Warren. I, you, Unless he's playing against Jimmy Butler, you never see him get upset. But Aaron Holiday is going to show some red ass. And, and red ass, I think, is really important for teams over the course of an 82-game season just to, just to vary the personality of the team once in a while and, and show a different side. I think that Aaron Holiday is really important once in a while to get chippy and getting guys grilled and and show people playing Indiana just like kind of Reggie did when when he got here in '87 and and you saw him go up against Michael for the first time and talk about it at the at, at the beginning of episode nine of uh, of the Last Dance. You need a guy who's going to get in somebody's ass and sort of um, not poke the bear but stand up to the bear a little bit. Lance would always poke the bear, right? Right. I don't like poking the bear. But standing up to the bear is a really good thing, and that's what Aaron Holiday does. Yeah, and I hate to say it, but it was my number six on my list, and that was that Raptors game. And I'm not yeah. trying to spoil yours if you have this on your list or not, but I just remember that game so vividly. There was no Pascal Siakam, obviously, but you know Kyle Lowry, you know, gets into it with a fan early on, so it's already you know the tension is high between the Pacers and the Raptors, and. 
I just remember Aaron Holiday going back and forth, hitting big shots against Kyle Lowry, and I believe it was a pick and roll where he ran it with uh, Miles. There might have been a pick and pop, and Serge Ibaka steps out on him, and Holiday just cashes a three in his face. Yeah. And instead of just going back to play defense, he starts clapping in Ibaka's face to let him know, hey, you can't guard me. And Miles quickly grabs him and is like, hey, we don't do that. But to me at that moment, it made me fall in love with Aaron Holiday even more because at that point, I love seeing guys show emotion. And it's fun to compete, and it's fun to hit big shots like that, and all of us have dreamed about doing that in our driveways at some at some point. And here's Aaron Holiday getting an opportunity who's kind of been in the doghouse at this point throughout the season in the rotation, not in the rotation, starting, not even playing. You know, it's just one of those things where he has no consistency. And here he is coming up big as your third string point guard, <laughs> carrying your team against the defending champions, quote unquote, defending champions in a big in a big regular season game. So it was really cool to see him do that. But yeah, I mean, uh, any other thoughts on Brogdon in the Lakers game? Oh, you know what? I uh, not really. I I just when he's healthy, and when he and Vic kind of figure each other out a little bit, uh, I think that he and Victor, and uh, and and Warren to an extent, Sabonis and Turner can be really really good. I mean, you you got a bunch of guys where you know it, any of them can beat you on any given night. Uh, I I love his his professionalism. And uh, I, I think he's exactly that kind of guy you want in the locker room and the kind of but you need to to counter that you do need a guy like Holiday yeah. who's going to be all about competition. I don't need guys who play basketball. I need guys who compete at basketball. Well, and I like how those two are so different how they play too. You know, yeah, fast, slow. Uh, you know, a uh, slinger kind of, because I think Aaron Holiday is kind of a, a score first type mentality. He's not looking to pass first. That's his game. Where Malcolm's probably the opposite. I think they could play really well together. But I don't know if you saw this or not. I wanted to bring this up to you today as well. Um, off the glass, it's a it's a website. They asked me to be a part of. Uh, uh, being like a general manager of a team, I said I couldn't do it. But uh, my man Corey Waldron was doing the Pacers, and his new roster, he he made some trades in the offseason coming up, and basically what he got in return, he got rid of T.J. Leaf, Malcolm Brogdon, and Miles Turner, and in return got Drew Holiday, Luke Kennard, and Jackson Hayes. And I thought the Pacers took a, a mighty step back in those two in that trade right there. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are reasons that Kevin Pritchard's the GM and and not your boy. There's yeah. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I called Corey out on Twitter. I didn't care. I was like, well, the Pacers get significantly worse here on this move. You know, I, I like the thought of Drew Holiday in a Pacers uniform, but I, I mean, if you're gonna put Drew Holiday on the team. I'd rather keep Brogdon. I think him, Oladipo, and Brogdon could play together if you want to slide Warren down to the four, get a little more modern. I mean, whatever. I'm not saying that's what I would do, but um, I thought it was interesting, and he said he couldn't get much out of a trade force, a bonus, or Turner, which I thought was interesting. But, you know, I just wouldn't make a move just to make a move, even though it was a fun little exercise. But anyway, I digress. Let's move on to number three here. Kent, what's your number three for your top five My number my number three is uh, uh, Domas Sabonis, his first triple double, and it was at Denver. Hey, me um, too. He had twenty ten, and and I he's had four of those triple doubles in the season. I, I think he's one of those guys where you know you look at his, and this is another crazy. I know it's a crazy comparison, 
and and as as good as I think Domas Sabonis can be, I don't know if he can be as good as this guy. But I think he's kind of that Kevin McHale type guy who, who's going to be able to defend, rebound, pass, high basketball IQ, compete at a high level, and be a really solid component on a championship-level team. Again, if he's your best player, you got problems. Right. But if he's a contributing player, if he's your third best player, you can go win and, and win big and win championships. And I'm surprised that guys wouldn't pony up. For because if it's to me, if this is like a keeper type league where you're going to build a franchise over the years, Domas Sabonis is exactly the the kind of a stretch five type guy that I absolutely want. He can hit threes, he doesn't, but he's a, a very willing passer. You can play the pick and roll game with him at a really high level. He mm-hmm. totally gets it. He's smarter than hell. He he's a banger. He's willing to do kind of the dirty work. I think that he's one of those guys that if you've got him, he's one of those guys where if, let's say, in the Eastern Conference Finals, and this is a little bit far-fetched, but let's say they're playing the Heat, and you got to fi- figure out a way to mitigate Jimmy Butler. And so Jimmy Butler comes roaring down the lane. He's going to try to dunk it over somebody, and you need a big-ass lame beer-type guy who's going to corrupt his ability to get to the rim with violence. That's Domas Sabonis. Domas is going to be a willing participant in that kind of play that can change the tenor of a series. I think that Domas Sabonis of, well, this is a, that's maybe a crazy (laughs) statement, but I I was going to say the two guys they got for Paul, you know, he and Oladipo, that he might wind up being the guy that you kind of circle as the real get in that trade. But I think that that's only commensurate to the expectation when he was acquired, you know, so, but I love Sabonis, and I think we really saw in that game sort of the emergence of him as a, an offensive triple threat. Yeah, I mean, I had this as my number three too. This game in particular, and also I wanted to throw in the Doug McDermott uh, game as well. He had twenty four points on nine of ten shooting that game, yeah. and the Pacers outscored Denver on the road. And uh, I forget what the total points were differential, but I know the Pacers had forty one points in that fourth quarter to you know get that win and. Really, the Pacers were up quite a bit at home against Denver, and then they kind of gave it away in the third and fourth quarters, I believe, uh, a week prior to that. So they had revenge on their mind, and they were heading out on a five-game road trip. Uh, What was also cool in this game was Malcolm, Warren, and Domas all scored 22 points. And and we saw Malcolm have that, you know, kind of that, you know, cherry on top of the uh, top of the whipped cream there, as he as he dunked the ball home with the left hand and got Quinn out of a seat, which doesn't happen too too often. But you know, Quinn got excited on that one. It it, it was a it was a really fun game, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on uh, you know if you if you wanted to compare that trade that you mentioned, the uh, that Domas might be the most important player. I mean, what would it take? What would it take for the Pacers to get the perfect guys, like the perfect teammates around him? Because I think the Pacers are one dominant guy that can get to the basket away from, you know, really doing something special. Because I feel like we we have that Nola Depot, but it, it's still, will it ever be the same like it was? I think they could use another guy that just goes north and south instead of east and west. Because I think Domas will is probably the best, if, if not the best, one of the top five screen setters in the entire NBA. 
Yeah, he's really he loves using his body, and uh, he, I, I just think that he's really he's so willing. Mm-hmm. Like he is, he is clearly, and and this is the beauty of basketball, right? Is that we're right on top of the court when we're there, and you can see the faces, and, and the faces tell the story. And as Domas sets screens, as he grabs rebounds, you can tell that he knows how important those things are. When he does those things correctly, he's not stoic in any way, shape, or form. You can read his face really, really easily. And and so, you know, I, I think that that's part of the reason he's a fan favorite. I think the other thing is he just plays really smart basketball to the point where I can't believe he went to Gonzaga. Yeah. Right? What was he doing at Gonzaga? How, how, come, how come Indiana? <laughs> yeah, we love guys like this. Indiana, <laughs> their foundation is built around on guys like this, for God's sake. He doesn't come to IU. I don't know how that happened. He'd have been the most popular guy like in the history of Indiana basketball, at least over the last 15 years. <laughs> so, But, you know, you make a really good point. They do need somebody who can get to the get to the hole. I think McDermott, you mentioned, he's, he's a terrific player. Almost kind of a uh, boy, oh boy, he's a poor man's version of Chris Mullen in that he doesn't screw up a lot of things, and boy, he can shoot well enough to carry you. Uh, like, I remember DJ Augustine carried the Pacers in that playoff game against the Knicks. Like, he had he had one of those games where without him you were going to lose, but with him you won, and it, it was the only game where he really kind of lifted in, in that way the Pacers' fortunes. Doug McDermott can do that. Doug McDermott right. in a, in a seven-game series can go win you one of those games, and that's exactly the kind of guy they need to be able to move forward in the playoffs and not be eliminated in the first or, or the second round, get to the conference finals. I, I think that McDermott is exactly the kind of component piece you need in the absence of a guy like Jimmy Butler who's sort of going to be that brand guy, the you know, the guy – who is one of the top 10 players in the league who can carry a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's a great comparison because I do remember Augustine having a great game one in Madison Square Garden because I believe the – I can't remember who the Pacers played in that first round. It might have been Orlando, but I'm, I'm still drawing a blank. But I do know that they went and they said it was going to be a road trip. Atlanta. Was it Atlanta? Yeah. And so after that, they went straight to New York, and it was one of those games where it was – you know, you were nervous because you, the Pacers hadn't been this good in a long time. So it was kind of new to a lot of fans. And DJ Augustine, you know, had one of them games where you remember him for being productive. And then, like you said, yeah. he just kind of went away after that. But it, it, it's it's important to have bench players that are just solid enough to do the job and not lose the lead and can come up big for you every once in a while. So you already mentioned your number two was that Dallas game. Right. So is there anything else you want to throw in there on that as we just kind of move forward? No, that's fine. I, I think okay. we covered it pretty well. I, 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 as long as Miles Turner stays in his lane and does that kind of 16 and 13 thing, which he did against Dallas, I, I love the way he contributes to this team. Gotcha. All right. So for my number two, it's uh, probably what people would say is number one for them, but I went with Victor's game-tying three against Chicago in his return. Yeah. And, you know, it was just great to see him back because he was the face of the franchise and not having him out there after he got hurt in January uh, of 2018 or 19. I can't remember now. Was it 19? Yeah, 19. Right. Uh, Whenever he got hurt, it it was really a bummer. And and so being able to see him get back on the court, we saw it was not a great game from Victor. He was really rusty. 
But the fact that he pulled up and hit that shot in a very uh, crucial moment against a really bad Bulls team, I mean, that was that was a big win for the Pacers who were, you know, jockeying for playoff position. And while you're trying to get Victor back into it, I mean, we saw, I think the Pacers went on a six or seven game losing streak after that game. So it was nice to see him get his feet wet, hit that shot and be able to overcome that anxiety of the first game back. You know, one of seven from threes that game. And that's my number one game. Gotcha. Uh, and and number one moment, uh, and it it validated. It was obviously so emotional for him because it it validated all that lonely work, and and that's when you talk to guys who rehab an injury like that, whether it was Paul or whether it's Vic, or or whomever. The thing that gets to them is the loneliness, mm-hmm. and and the loneliness that Victor experienced, and and how deeply he needed to dig to kind of keep himself emotionally elevated. And, and get himself physically ready to play again, for him to hit that shot after missing all those other shots. And he's still like, you know, I'm taking it. Here I go. Yeah. You, if he makes it, you love it. If he misses it, you're like, hey, you got four other guys out there, clown, who can knock down shots. What the <laughs> hell are you thinking? Right. But in this case, it worked out, and it was fine. And, and Victor's really got to figure out that shot and get himself to a point where, you know, he migrates from the explosive athlete to the guy who can absolutely shoot. And I think that's going to be a tough transition for him. That's going mm-hmm. to be hard for him. He works his ass off at shooting. Yeah. But he, he just, like, his arms are so long. And I always equate shooting a, shooting a basketball to playing golf. And if you got really long arms, it's so much harder to control that club when it when it comes to golf and that's why you got guys like jeff sluman who get out there like five six with a little short stubby arms or or the japanese players who get out there who are kind of short-armed they really do a good job of controlling the club head mm-hmm. guys who shoot well generally don't have gigantic long arms uh and and victor just kind of does and so i think it's tough for him to control that shot his feet are kind of all over the place when he shoots, he tries to get that stuff right. And you talk to him about shooting, and I don't know whether he's being coy or not, but I always try to talk to him about shooting when I talk to him. And and he gives away nothing. Like, he's like, oh, I just shoot. I'm like, yeah, but what are you thinking a bit with your feet? What are you doing with your feet? He's like, no, no, no. No, no. I just shoot. I, I take the ball and I shoot it. I don't believe that's necessarily true. Right. I mean, I don't know of anybody who's a good shooter who doesn't kind of break things down to their component parts. But Victor is very, very consistent in in giving you kind of those lines about how it's just shooting and it's it's not about hand position. It's not about follow through and it's not about, you know, hand in the cookie jar and all that crap. It's just about making the ball go in the net. And if you do it enough, you get good at it. And if you don't do it enough, you don't. He's working his ass off at it. And hopefully over time he gets better because I think that that's going to have to be the thing that really puts him in a position where he can still get to the rim. Because if people have to respect the shot from deep, you draw the defender and you put yourself in a better position to get around him. And, And that's kind of where... He's got to make that evolution, just like Jordan did. Mm-hmm. Another another completely inappropriate comparison. But Jordan, as he got older, became a much better shooter from deep. And I think Victor's going to have to do the same thing. 
I mean, it's all right. Uh, Oladipo is our, our Jordan, and Malcolm is our Scotty. <laughs> so, you know, Miles is our coup coach, and uh, I guess Sabonis yeah. would be our Horace Grant. So, yeah, I mean, why not? And Just Goga, all- Goga's Bill Wennington. <laughs> yeah, but Bill, he's got to play. And it- <laughs> <So>. <laughs> hey, Goga's day is coming, baby. Here comes Goga. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I guess to uh, unveil my number one is uh, Domas Sabonis making the All-Star game. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to mention this one. I maybe I shouldn't have put a number one, but I just thought it was so cool that this was just kind of the the stamp on in your face to Paul George and OKC for that trade going down. And we've talked about that trade and how important it's been for this franchise. And I mean, you just think about it. Last year, Domas is coming off the bench. He's wanting a bigger role. They let Thad Young go, somebody that was a huge part of the team's success. And Thad was just a great locker room guy. They say, hey, we're going to have to go in a different direction. Then there's talks that they might not extend Domas before the season. He's a little frustrated. They end up coming to terms and agreeing to a deal. And he just flourishes. And they figure out a way to make the Pacers a better team with him as the focal point on offense. And sure, there are still some... You know, liabilities defensively with him and Miles, but they're working it out, and we saw over the season that they got better at it. So, you know, I just thought it was something I wanted to bring up. I mean, the guy's got 18 points, or is averaging 18 points, 13 rebounds, and five assists. Made his first All-Star game, you know, represented Indiana well, and, you know, we we needed another All-Star to go with Victor, and I think that we're going to see... Maybe if he doesn't get a bid every year, but I think you're going to see these consistent numbers from domas for multiple years to come and he just turned 24 that's what i'm saying you know he is still really really young and and the best is so yet to come from domas sabonis and i think that the same is true with uh um with miles Mm -hmm. you know i think the best is yet to come with miles and as these guys sort of settle into their roles and and figure this stuff out and as everybody gets healthy this got to be a hell of a team, and and hopefully in this short, little tight window of a, a regular season, as it resumes in July, and then you head into the postseason. I, I don't see any reason why, if they use this time and have used this time well, that they won't gain the advantage that they need to win a playoff series or two, and really kind of show that sort of evolution toward excellence that I think everybody sort of expects around here. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you this because it just kind of comes back to the 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 NBA resuming in a couple of weeks, like you mentioned, and possibly, you know, playing their playoff games in Disney, like they've mentioned. How do you think that impacts the Pacers not having a, a fan base to play in front of? Does that hurt or help? No, I, I think it's I think they're mostly the same from place to place. I mean, yeah. nothing against Pacers fans, but I don't see any kind of radical difference between Pacers fans and Jazz fans. And maybe the Suns don't have a lot of fans because they've sucked forever. But I, I think every home court has an advantage unto itself. And I don't think that it's going to be that big a deal. I think it's a cool environment at Bankers Life Field House. But I'll tell you the truth. Like, if you go down on the court, or, or if you go down, if you sit in the loge suites at, at like what used to be Jacobs Field in, in Cleveland and you're sort of removed from the fans, it becomes very insulated. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that despite the fact that, you know, you got guys like Colts owner Jim Irsay saying, hey, you know, Blue Nation, we need you and all that crapola, 
I don't think that there's any real profound advantage from one building to the next and, and that the players just kind of go out and play, you know, regardless of fans sort of, uh, you know, their stoking of that furnace, that at least what we perceive that to be emotionally. I, I just don't think it exists at the level that we believe it does. And so I think if they go down to Orlando or if I would assume we'll go to Orlando, the East will go to Orlando and the West will go to Vegas. Um, I, I think that it's going to be fine for us. You know, it's it, we're no different than Milwaukee in a lot of ways. I, I think we're we're very very similar both to, in terms of size, in terms of building, in terms of passion for the product. I think yeah. we'll be all right. Yeah. Well, and I have to ask you this too because I never really remember going to Market Square Arena. I'm sure I went as a kid, but it's you know just kind of you know right blonde to this point. I, I've Spent many a games in Bankers Life Fieldhouse, but seeing the replays of these games in Market Square Arena, I mean, everybody talking about how loud it was. Do you think that they kind of missed out on that, keeping that kind of environment, or do you like the Fieldhouse environment? Well, you know what? I, that That's a great question because there are a couple of different answers. There are a couple of different aspects to the answer. One is there were no suites, right? That, okay. Actually, there was one suite. There was the owner's suite. And but it sat like twelve people, so that place was not built to, built to monetize. It was built to put people on top of the floor. Yeah, and and then that team that played really through two thousand, so it had had what a, a season, I think, at Bankers Life Fieldhouse. Um, that every we loved that team, like they were so cool. They shaved their heads for the ninety eight playoffs. They had guys that, you you know, you'd been around for, you know, a dozen years, eight years. Smiths had been here for a long time. Miller, Mark had been here a couple of times, but really going back to about 94. Uh, you know, the Davises had been here a long time. And so you knew those guys. McKee had been here since 93. Mullen had been here for a little bit. And even if he wasn't here, you knew who he was. And and so you you love the tenacity of that team, their camaraderie, and with Larry as the coach, that building. I'm telling, you, I went to Game Four where Miller hit the shot, and then Jordan had the shot rim out right on the back end. That was in this way. I'll contradict what I said about a home court advantage. That place shook, literally shook, yeah. when Reggie hit that shot. There is no way that the Bulls were unaffected by that crowd during that series. That was a badass crowd. But it's <laughs> going to take a while for Indianapolis and, and Central Indiana to fall in love with this team in the way they did with that team back in the 90s. Because, and, you know, I used to be the program director and uh, was the assistant program director of WIBC at, at that time. And, and so I was privy to the ratings. And the, the Pacers really, for most years, did not give a lot of lift, ratings-wise, to WIBC. But that season, and and the season prior to that in 2000, that was significant lift. Mm -hmm. There were people who who listened to Mark and Slick religiously in a way to listen to that team that just kind of doesn't exist at this point. But they've got a lot of these guys under contract for a significant period of time. If they sign Oladipo to the extension, you got guys who are going to play here for years, and and maybe this is that team where you can kind of get that esprit de corps going 
uh, internally and then externally with the fans. I think that that could happen. Yeah, that's that's really cool, and I and I love how you just kind of talked about how long those guys were a part of that '90s Pacers yeah. team before they really got to achieve success. And we know that they made it to the finals in 2000, but we know the real golden opportunity was 1999 when they blew that series yeah. to the Knicks. I mean, that still just haunts me all the time. I just think, I mean, really, <laughs> the Pacers, that's the year they should have won. I mean, I, even in 2000, you know, Kobe was really starting to come into his own in 99-2000, but 98-99, I mean, that's when the Spurs made the finals. So, like, we wouldn't even have had to face Shaq, and I think that Spurs team would have been a much better matchup for the Pacers. But, you know, <laughs> you can only... You know, yeah, revisit all that and hope and wonder. But that Knicks team was a little bit, you know, better than an eight seed, but not much. They were not that good. The Pacers just choked up personally in that Eastern Conference Finals in '99. But yeah, I mean, that would be great to see the Pacers nowadays get out of the first round, make a couple playoff runs. I yeah. think the fans will fall more in love with this team if they if they see how close they can get. You know, that's why they were so happy after the first year. It's like, hey, we weren't expecting anything once Paul left. We took LeBron to seven games and had a chance to win it. I'm so pumped for next year. And then what happened the next year? Victor gets hurt. Tyreek Evans comes in and has a Monte Ellis yeah. effect on the team. So it is important, but I, I think that <laughs> it's important who you bring in, right? But I think, you know, this year, if they can win a first-round series, maybe, you know, upset somebody in the second round, I think they have the talent to do it. But if they can make a couple, you know, runs in a playoff series get past a team or two in a round or two i think the fans will start gravitating more towards hey this team is somebody we're really invested in it's if they're a first round exit for the next three years fans are going to get disappointed and not want to invest as much time in that so it's it's up to the players it's up to the organization to figure out what they need to do to get the right pieces in there but you know donnie walsh is an advisor and we saw how many terrific moves he's made over the 90s where he ended up making great moves and trading value away to get better value in return. So anyway, Kent, any other thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I'm stoked. I'm ready. I'm ready for him to throw it up. We got about eight weeks left and so we'll count the days and let's go. Absolutely. So it's going to be a few weeks before you hear back from me and Kent, but we will be back in a couple weeks and we'll be talking all things Pacers basketball. We'll get you up to date on any new things. And if we have something in mind, we can always come back to our top five list of some sort. So follow me at Alex Golden NBA. And of course, you can follow Kent at Kent Sterling. And our podcast is at Setting the Pace 3. Until next time, people, we'll talk to you later. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.